I would like to acknowledge that this podcast is being recorded on the traditional lands of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people and pay my respects to the elders past, present and emerging. We also acknowledge the traditional custodians at each of our delegate hubs and throughout the country, where many of our listeners will be based. This is a moment that requires leadership. China signing a security pact and looking to establish a base. People think I don't like China. I love China. The Pacific region has listed climate change as its number one threat. And so, friends, AUKUS is born. With a failure to invest in renewables. I want to thank uh, that fellow down under. I just have two more words to say. Obama out. Welcome to this episode of the Australian Crisis Simulation Summit podcast series for 2022. My name is Liam Sinan. In this series, members of the ACSS will host distinguished academics and industry leaders in talks on various national security topics. Our team has selected these podcast topics as being crucial in providing insights and knowledge relevant to the ACSS Summit in December this year. Today, I'm joined by Nicholas Lemayhaber. Nicholas is an Associate Professor in the Department of International Relations. He graduated with his PhD in International Relations from Science Po in 2010. Prior to joining ANU in 2019, Nicholas worked as an invited professor at the University of Quebec at Montreal and senior lecturer at the University of Birmingham. His current research interests include state building and intervention issues in Asia Pacific and beyond. He is particularly interested in local resistance to international interventions, political economy of interventions, as well as issues relating to Haiti, where he has considerable experience. Nicholas has co-edited four books, including The Normalization in World Politics, Semantics of State Building, Language, Meanings and Sovereignty, the Political Intervention of Fragile States, and Hybridity, Law, Culture, and Development. This discussion will look at a range of issues across the very broad topic of interventions, so it is important to note that the podcast will only provide an introduction to what I'm sure, as we will see, is a very complex topic. So, Nicholas, thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. Okay, so we'll get straight into it. So, looking at a definition on what humanitarian interventions are, drawing upon what they were, what they are today, and maybe what they should be. How would you interpret that term? Yeah, it's, um, it's a very good question to start with. I think um, usually the easiest way, I guess, to understand what humanitarian interventions can be is um, understanding what kind of purpose they serve, right? So first of all, um, it's usually a time frame, a humanitarian intervention. So usually we'll say between, say, the date of the disaster or whatever happened that elicited this type of intervention to let's say six months, that will be the humanitarian kind of phase of an intervention. So this is where um, you know you, you have to think of the, the kind of logics of say um, saving lives, yeah, getting people outside of out of the rubble, for instance, or um, you know all this kind of sort of um, logics of of um, urgency um, that is that is linked to humanitarian interventions. So as I said, this is usually between zero to six months. And um, what is important then to understand uh, a definition of humanitarian intervention is that they tend also to actually cover another phase of an intervention, right? That will be after six months that tends to be more development-oriented. It's a very different register for interventions. Then we're talking about, you know, what anyone could think of as usual development that is then uh, addressing the structural roots uh, of the problem at the first place so you know if there's a all disasters are man-made to a certain extent you know um, societies have um, weaknesses or, 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 or 
you know, we know full well in Australia that certain communities will be uh, more prone f- to, to disasters than others. And so we have to understand why development in general, broadly speaking, will be then addressing those causes, right? But humanitarian intervention, the first phase, it's not about that at all, right? It's right. about finding the, finding people, saving lives. Um, and so this, is, this, is, this tends to be the clash of past, current, and future humanitarian intervention is this understanding that there's two different moments and these two moments co- carry very different logics of interventions that tend actually to go against each other to a certain extent. One, when you're trying to go fast and save lives and, and go quickly on the ground, um, you don't have a logic of getting in touch with people or working with local actors. You don't have time the time for that. But if you do only that, then after six months comes development and we're not then ready to actually address the structural causes of the problem. So then we are left in a kind of a endless cycles of disasters, which unfortunately happens in lots of places uh, nowadays. Right. And I know looking at certain examples, I know in my studies in your classes, we always look at those examples that could be improved upon, to say the least. Are there many examples of successful interventions? Yeah, so I I guess it depends how we are defining success, right? Success for whom and for what purpose? Um, Because there's always a bit of success in most interventions. You know, there's no no single intervention is a total failure when you think about it. It's always depending on which perspective, who's the actor involved, you know, even if you think of the, the worst of of the worst of like, I don't know, the Afghan intervention last 20 years, obviously you'll be hard pressed to, you know, um, uh, label it a success story. Uh, well, it is a success story for specific actors. You know, <laughs> the warlords are probably quite happy with the f- result of all this and the whole process by, uh, as well, by the way. Specific um, private contractors will also, you know, probably made a lot of... Um, a lot of uh, a lot of uh, money out of uh, you know the, these kind of issues. So I think this, it, it all goes down to this. And you know I, I know it sounds a bit rhetorical and saying, oh, yeah, well that's an easy cop out. But actually, it is not. It's it's actually at the center of the debate of what is success in interventions, right? Because for quite a while we've been thinking about the success from the international perspective, right? From the perspective of those people. In you know uh, engaging in an interventions, hence um, I think this is then a problem when we think about it because you can have a fairly successful intervention, say Cambodia, um, the Ontak moment, uh, the um, at the start of the nineties. It's a fairly successful intervention, you know, when you think about it. We managed to get the refugees back from Thailand to uh, to Cambodia. We um, we manage a uh, you know a, a, an election that was obviously not perfect, and then we exited the country. But what is the real result of all this, right? Obviously, once you start questioning this, and if you go from a local perspective, it's not going to be necessarily seen as a as a success story. We still have Hansen you know ruling the place, but kind of real change that happened. But from an international perspective, it is a success. So it depends really what is the kind of um, the criteria. To Bit of a loaded term. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, but it may, and, and, and at the center of the debates about, you know, a successful or not intervention. So if, you know, we are tending now to go in a maximalist understanding of success, meaning what? Meaning that it's not possible to think of a success that is not actually a successful, fr- 
kind of a successful uh, process from a local perspective. So then that's the second phase. So if you, if for the, for, as I said, in the first phase, we were thinking about success in our own terms, broadly speaking, then I think now we have to think of success from a local perspective. How can we actually um, have interventions that make a difference for people's life? Positively, <laughs> because yeah. we know how to make a difference negatively, but how can we make it posi- uh, uh, you know, a difference uh, positively? And that, that is a very, very hard question, to be honest. Right. <laughs> so we'll be jumping around next in our next question relating to one of your former books that you've published. Mm-hmm. So looking at the fragile states debate and looking at how fragile states may be perceived as this emerging threat, do they represent a legitimate threat to the international community or is this this idea that's conflated with the industry of intervening? Yeah, so then I'll circle back to my point earlier, I think, to a certain extent, because it does, I think the state fragility discussion, it's, it's, it's very important to understand the um, the kind of the, the evolution of interventionary practices, um, especially from the 90s. So um, <coughs> the, fra- the, the, the failed state debates, let's say, or the, the concept really emerged in, 92, 93, if I want to be precise with the mm-hmm. listeners. And that is with one article that is very, very important in the field, that it's um, Hellman and Ratner uh, article. Um, uh, and um, in published in Foreign, uh, Foreign Affairs. And um, they do make that case that, yeah, the f- failed state is this new category, is this new problem that, uh, that, we need to, um, that we need to address. And... Um, Maybe because it's 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 an alliance. The two authors, one is um is uh, working for the for the U.S. government. The other one is um a well-known academic. It kind of picked up a lot of uh, steam, and there was a lot of attention um, towards this. And so at first, you know, um, this the kind of the failed state that you could think of, um, Somalia, all these cases were kind of subsumed into this wide category, right? So you would think of all states that are a bit abnormal. You know, not exactly fitting the definition of, you know, a nice place where you would, um, you know, <laughs> there was a there was a discussion I remember at that time, like holding Olympics. You know, like you don't, if you think of a state, you think, hmm, would I hold an Olympics there? If you say no, that probably this is kind of in the wider spectrum of fragility from <laughs> for these authors for this first you know generation of of work, and so you know they define they define failed states yes as as communities that um that are not able to to govern themselves so it was quite a kind of paternalistic language quite assumed as well that we we're actually using uh, this kind of trusteeship discussion um, people you know impaired not being able to make you know good sound judgment you know it was basically the Britney Spears of international relations <laughs> so um so that was the first the, the first phase of this. And then for them, there were definitely then legitimate threats to the international community. And, uh, you know, to, to in 2002, right after uh, the, um, the, um, the 9-11, it started picking up steam a lot in international uh, parlance or you know, international discourse. And um, it started in 2002 with the national um, kind of security strategy of the U.S., uh, really put like it's the first paragraph basically saying that uh, fr- fragile and failed states are uh, the threats the main threats to international community but what is interesting then is that we see mer- we see with this evolution of the discourse a really different now position towards 
um, these states. And that means also different ways of intervening and, and conceptualizing our role, generally speaking, in the world. So from this kind of like certainties about the world, this kind of feeling that certain states can be labeled as such, as fragile and failed, and then that enables us to, you know, us, broadly speaking, the international community, then when I say us, is always the international community here, but to intervene and then transform them, make them better, make them more kind of at our image, broadly speaking. And, you know, you think of the Iraqi intervention, that's a really good example of this in 2003. You know, we go there and we, we hope that they will see uh, us, Americans, part of the coalitions as, um, as, uh, as uh, liberators, you know, and freeing them. And then they all want to, you know, buy jeans and, uh, and eat at McDonald's and be part of this globalization. That's the, the time of, uh, at that, uh, uh, that moment. Now we're really far from this, right? Because progressively people started questioning this you know how can you label these states as fails and you know it's one thing to say that somalia is a, is a failed state i think that most people will agree but then what is the really kind of the cutoff point what is how does <laughs> how do you work your way up into this you know and who's what is strong what is what is, what is a strong state you know which one now and so the more and more what you see emerging you know after the 90s the 2000s you see that there's self-doubt about ourselves. Are we really that strong? Are we really models to be emulated? Look at the U.S. right now, you know. And in the 90s, I remember, and I'm teaching this, you know, but um, you have maps of state fragility and state strength, and the U.S. is, like, above everyone else in gray, you know, not even, like, in the map because, you know, it's end of history, too good to be true. And now, you know, is this maybe a failed state? There's more and more people actually using that term in the literature, saying that the U.S. is a failed state. The U.K., Gordon Brown used this recently, saying the U.K. is on the verge of, of failure. Like, what? What? Are, so that's interesting kind of shift. And then so then that means that we are, us, everyone is a legitimate threat to the international community, which makes it interesting and fits the general focus now that we have on less, less certainty about interventions, as I said, and... And, and more kind of uh, self-doubts about, about our possibilities of transforming the world. And so what we see is good enough now interventions, just trying to build enough, like the Syrian case is a very good example, especially when you contrast it with Iraq. But the Syrian case is such a great example of, you know, uh, not being able to commit to really transforming the place and, and making this at our image, right? And it's just like good enough, just enough so it doesn't create... Uh, a big enough problem for us. It's the same kind of policies, the European policies towards North Africa or, or elsewhere. It's just enough for the US versus Haiti, just enough in order to keep the boat people in, and, you know, and just... Um, so it, it, it means a very different ways of interacting with uh, the um, these, these threats, in a sense. And maybe that's more reflective of who we are and what we have become as a community than uh, any real change on the ground from these places that are before were labeled as uh, failed and now we don't even know how to label them anymore. So speaking of labels and language used in terms of countries that um, the international community intervene in, is there a term used at the moment or is this still kind of this grey area that's in the middle? That's very interesting. So there's a number of terms, right? And, and what is interesting is that the, the self-labeled fragile states 
groups, so the G7 Plus, it's called, actually got into that conversation themselves, right? Tried to kind of repossess the term. It's, that happens for every single kind of term you can think of. Uh, the concepts don't tend to be used just one way. There will always be different contested ways of, of using different concepts. And so they said, well, wait a minute. We don't want to be labeled by you. Who are you to label us? And then started con contesting this. And, and now what we see, so we move from state failure, which was really normatively laden, right? Like you can feel like, okay, you failed as society, you know? Be ashamed of yourselves, in a sense, <laughs> to... State fragility, which is less normatively kind of Latin and a bit more kind of softer in tones, brings closer to the development language. And now we are talking actually of states, plural, of fragility. And everyone is a bit frag fragile in this new new kind of uh, new terms or new, new concepts. That means that there's a bit of fragility everywhere in the world, all in us, and then also, weirdly enough, it also then enables new forms of interventions in our own backyard, in a sense, right? Before that, interventions were only occurring in places labeled as such. You know, you are you're failed, then you are your sovereignty rules don't apply to you anymore. You you open yourself to interventions, which you know, this is this, this was the same thing in during colonial times. You know, like you have different like levels levels of barbarity. If you're if you're absolutely kind of outside of the rules of civilization, then you know you are open opening yourself for a season of interventions. Um, it's the same thing now with, with like the failed failed state literature, but now with everyone is a bit of a bit failed, a bit fragile. It opens up potentially perspectives of interventions between ourselves, like correcting mechanisms, looking at, at what, we, what we do right and wrong. <laughs> so yeah, it's, it's a new era. We don't know really what's going to happen with, with all this, but what is true is that um, as a model of strength, um, we'll be hard-pressed even to find like Scandinavian countries as models of an anything right now at the moment when you look at how they are handling migration, for instance, and even in their own uh, newspapers and schools, they are questioning themselves, uh, what have we become? This is not this, the kind of Denmark that I used to know. And not. So, so there's a, a lot of kind of discourse as well about self-doubt in every single kind of democratic country. I guess it relates back to the idea of positive peace and whether or not you can have positive peace, or rather, it's something to aim towards and something they can always improve upon. Yeah, so this this is definitely a name, right? It's 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 never it's never perfect, it's never finished, it's never an end state. But at the same time, um, it is it is it is even bigger than the kind of positive peace, negative peace discussion because it does show that there's that there's there's a really big self kind of doubt about about our own communities and foundations, which I think is actually quite problematic when you think about it. I, I, I do like self-doubt. I'm embracing it. But I do think that it means that we are... Um, that Yeah, I, I, I think we are realizing the fact that there's no hand of history. Absolutely. Like, we knew this from, from quite, a, quite a while, but now we're really literally witnessing uh, democratic backsliding and, you know, and, and feeling that... Obviously, far-right uh, parties are, are picking up steam in various countries. It, it, it feels ominous. I don't know how you, it feels for you, you know, for, for young people out there. I'm not young anymore, I guess. But, you know, it feels ominous a bit. It feels like we are in the beginning, like at the start of something new, 
what is this going to be, this new, you know, is it going to be like a, a profound democratic revolution showing a, a different kind of positive peace, showing a different way of, of being altogether? Or is this going to be this new rise of the hatred around us that's going to be a very different societies around? But I think that definitely then it, fe it feels that it's not the right time to be, to be um, positioning ourselves as models to be emulated <laughs> everywhere in Latin America or in Africa or elsewhere in Asia. Definitely. Now, circling back around to how to measure the success of an intervention, how do you launch an effective intervention? So what are those factors that are so important to attain to make sure you don't start perpetuating the very conditions in which you're trying to prevent? So again, you know, always with the caveat that effective or successful intervention is, can, can, be, can be different things, right? Because you can have very successful interventions that are actually quite a, quite a catastrophic nightmare for local population. But if we stop, let's say, for the assumption that an effective intervention is an, is an intervention that manages to... Um, change things for the better locally, uh, for the local uh, population. Um, I think the first way, and this is this very difficult engagement with culture, with different culture, right? Like um, most of the listeners here will be, will be probably more familiar with a kind of um, anglophone kind of settings with this kind of... Um, this kind of general kind of um, culture and 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 customs uh, from uh, from uh, from you know shared by a number of democratic states, but it, when you start traveling a little bit outside of this bubble, you're encountering difference, right? So how do we handle difference? An effective intervention is actually an intervention that ma manages to deal effectively with difference. And make something good. So that doesn't mean that you are there to kind of save the world and transform people. And I know better than than you do, so I'll, I'll I'll show you the way. It means that you need you need to be able to first of all engage with that difference, with that culture. That means that you have to understand it. You have to be able to speak the language, and you know, generally understand the norms around you. You know, and that sounds very easy and obviously quite. Um, um, quite straightforward, it's actually not at all. It's very, very difficult to have those type of interventions for various reasons, because interventions tend to be done in a hurry when there's a crisis. You don't have to, you know, what would that mean? So for instance, I don't know, it would mean that we, you'll have a stand-up uh, force of, of, you know, peacekeepers ready to be deployed everywhere in the world, speaking the languages, the norms, and being, you know, ready to be deployed in these places. Of course, of course, this is, this is not, um, uh, doesn't really fit the budget right now, the financial constraints of this world. So, so what we are stuck with is uh, we have interventions and, and it's good enough kind of interventions, right? It's and the interventions that are, tend to be effective are those that, yeah, w deploy peacekeepers that can have um, a positive kind of uh, impact on, on, on the community. I'm giving you an example. Uh, in the, so I've done some field work in Timor-Leste. Uh, uh, Timor and the most effective peacekeepers there, they were not necessarily, well, the Australians were actually not bad at all, um, but, it, but they were not the, the kind of the Americans or the Canadians, what you would expect, you know, as the this kind of like very successful peacekeepers. Um, they were actually, um, you know, Filipinos, Singaporeans, right? Because they understand, broadly speaking, the language and they can actually interact with people. It's, it's very similar 
to their own situation back home. And then they were actually able to to do something positively around. I mean, at least when I was there for, 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 for a little while, they were really effective. Um, and so this is important. An effective intervention is, an eff- is interveners actually understanding what's going on around them. And that's the first... Uh, the first kind of step towards uh, any effectiveness in interventions. And then in terms of looking at those challenges for interventions, what role does nationalism play in preventing peacekeeping operations or at least hampering them? So na- you, you mean like local nationalism? Local nationalism of the state they're in intervening in. Of co- Yeah, so I don't know if this is really a problem because in most states, in most places where you are intervening, it comes with the territory that actually sovereignty will be quite dissipated as i said right if you if you are targeted as a you know listed as a failed state um and you probably have either a conflict or a you know disaster that happened uh, to you and and obviously disasters strike everywhere but with dif- very different consequences right if you're chile if you're japan or if you're haiti an earthquake will have very different ramifications for you because of your capacity to deal with that um, so um, in general, nationalism is 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 um, can be an issue, but it's not necessarily the main issue because um, the just the fact of intervening means that usually um, there's a lack of kind of a capacity to um, to mobilize. So I think that again, if if you if you are discarding all this kind of cultural aspects of interventions and you're intervening and thinking about effectiveness effectiveness from your own perspective, from your own institutional technocratic perspective, you know, taking the boxes, I've I've constructed that number of houses, um, you know, fed that number of children and then you don't really care about really engaging with the with the culture locally, then uh, Yes, that can lead to a rise of nationalism, broadly understood, obviously. So nationalism doesn't have to be a force of all bad, you know. Obviously, nationalism has this kind of, um, um, has this kind of sense or connotation because of the uh, the Second World War mainly. But nationalism can be something force for good, you know. Like you think about the Olympics, everyone is, you know, rooting for their own country, and Australia is doing quite well with sports in general. Everyone's happy about that, and there's nothing wrong with that as well. To feel, to feel. You know, to be proud of us being Australian in the, in these moments, um, it's when nationalism is used by specific actors as a force for um, less good, let's say, right? And to be able to like point the fingers at, at different uh, segments of societies and 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 actually target them and and try to ostracize them. This is this when the problem is uh, happening, but this is rarely the case well, for interventions, as far as I can tell, right? Um, I think it's harder than if we are understanding nationalism in a broader sense. It's harder, I guess, to have an impact on on this kind of broad feeling of of identity, right? Formation. So, for instance, a good example is the Balkans. So, in in, in Bosnia, the international community tried to build this kind of sense of the Bosnian beyond the nation, the nation, though that there's different communities. Um, never managed to really do it, right? And um, so it's very difficult to create this, to to be actually able to to understand the difference, to understand the different uh, the different communities, and actually even be able to build something different. It's a, it's it's a different uh, uh, altogether agenda and objective. And we are less, as I said, we are less in this state of mind at the moment. But uh, 
But I do think that then nationalism, in that sense, if we understand it in that sense, can be can be hindering the creation. But this is also the problem of the of the Bosnian people, for, and they have to settle this between themselves, right? They have to 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 agree or disagree on how what the kind of community they wanna they wanna build together. At some point, we should stop, you know, trying to kind of build communities from the outside and decide how people should be uh, should be yeah living together. Now we are jumping around slightly once again. Looking at the track record of peacekeeping operations, I think it's fair to say that it hasn't been great um, as a whole. In terms of the accountability and the legal measures in place to prevent, if not oversight, and keep to account the people on the ground committing atrocities, are there is there anything in place? Uh, not really. That's the answer. That's it's it's a bit sad, but it's it's a big fight, and obviously that link links back to your question about uh, sovereignty and failed states in general. So obviously, as I said, intervening itself means that there's there's definitely going to be a deficit of sovereignty, whatever you call it, from the from those communities. So then that means that this authority that is displayed and and used exercised by international actors, right? What's going on is that these actors then act like states because there's no other straight state structures on the ground actually representing people, but they have no accountability whatsoever, which is absolutely contrary to any kind of uh, political theory that you can learn here at the ANU. So, and this is this is the problem. This is what local actors are trying to um, to to challenge, right? There's no tri tribunal, and you wouldn't find one if you're looking for for this. Uh, what we see is pushed by uh, local actors to try to uh, get some form of modicum of accountability for very specific issues. So, for instance, there's three different uh, issues right now who are uh, still at center stage in this in this fight: is um, the Kosovo lead poisoning case. I don't know if you heard of that, but it's um, um, uh, Roma uh, population that has been displaced inside the Kosovo by U the UN actually trying to resettle them near a mine and and the old, the old field was uh, poisoned by lead actually and that infiltrated the water and so the kids were really really sick and so there was um, there was a kind of a push a third party claim uh, illegal parlance um, to kind of recognize the kind of, uh, the uh, the responsibility of the UN this because they were actually acting as a state at the moment at that specific point of time um, there's a trust fund that was created but there's no money in the trust fund so that's not accountability but it's a precedent right we're moving in the right direction the same thing that happened for the mothers in Srebrenica case uh, after Bosnia also um, uh, claiming that the, the the Dutch peacekeepers didn't protect them and they should have protected them in this kind of um, the, the safety zones that uh, were created by the UN at that time. And uh, the cholera case, that is a case that I've been following uh, very closely. Um, that is um, the UN bringing cholera to Haiti in 2010 uh, after the earthquake. And um, uh, the cholera was not endemic to the, to the country and so killed 10,000 people and infected 10% of the population, so infected 1 million uh, people. So this is quite a big disaster, created or at least brought in by the UN 
probably inadvertently, but that's another question. And then there's no accountability for that whatsoever. So there's a number of our actors who've been pushing for for more accountability for these for these actions. And that's just the kind of the tip of the iceberg, I guess. But it's it's a way to make sure that these issues get central stage in terms of media um in, in terms of also yeah the listeners like the students uh, knowing about these about these issues and that uh, and then once you understand these three or four cases then um we can bring this up to sexual exploitation and abuse cases by peacekeepers right people being raped in different missions and and having ab- absolutely no compensation for this this is this is also also an issue so aside from the awareness side of these tribunals um Looking at the creation of these trust funds, what role does money play in establishing that form of justice, I guess? Mm-hmm. How do you ensure that that money is effectively put to good use? Yeah, so it's a good, that's a really good point. Um, because you, there's been a focus and it's all good, you know, to a certain extent on the normative side of things. So, you know, at least apologize, right? Um, and to a certain extent, we've seen that, and this is important, but, you know, the apologies, they don't, they don't obviously. Um, um, they don't. Uh, they don't help. Um, y- you know, people who have been struck by those by those uh, by those disasters to actually survive, financially speaking. So, in the case of Haiti, at least I can ta- talk about this specific case because I'm, I'm not quite sure with the Kosovo-led case. But in the case of Haiti, um, there's a big discussion or debate between the different forms of reparation this could take. You know, like the collective reparation would be development projects, would be general kind of projects, helping general communities. And then if anyone listening would think, yeah, this is good, you know, this helps the most people, I'm all in favor. The problem is that in general in Haiti and in all of those places is the graveyard of development projects that never seen the light of day, right? So you see, oh, this is the clinic that was supposed to be built by whoever never finished, never got the money or some of the money you know embezzled blah 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 if the project is over it's done you have a clinic then maybe it's going to be staffed by relatives of the mayor you know all these stories go around and so people and um, i work with the lawyers representing those uh, the, the communities are impacted by by cholera what they wanted is actually individual reparations and then obviously it's a bit like go back to your question you think this is going to be a waste of money. But it's the general discourse that we have in this capitalistic kind of <laughs> moments where, you know, we always blame, let's say, poor people in general. And Haitians would definitely fit the bill in that in that regard, from like maybe mishandling money in general, right? But all evidence points toward that the fact that they don't tend to be wasting money, right? <laughs> like if you come from a po- like a modest background, you will know that you will count each cent, you know, and that this old kind of like idea that everyone drinks the money away and things like that is a bit, you know, kind of a creation of a specific tabloids. Um, in the case of Haiti, poor people know very well what to do with the money. If you give them money, they will be making way better informed decisions than you could think of, you know, when you, we are in offices here in Canberra or in Washington or Paris or Montreal for that matter. So um, what we were looking at is, you know, s- very some small sums of money for our own, own kind of terms, like 100 or $200 per victim that we could help them to actually cover the cost uh, associated with the, the illness, you know, whether it is you have to sell a goat in order to get a cab, uh, 
because it was super expensive uh, at the time of the the spike of cholera because it was so difficult to get a cab. People were obviously it was quite a dangerous operation to be a cab driver at that time, you, not to get cholera, obviously. Um, so um, all these costs are there, all the funeral costs, and um, they they're not going to be dealt with, with through a clinic. Uh, that's going to be staffed by the mayor's friends, right? This, this is the problem. So it's probably we need both collective reparation and individual reparation. But um, if you um, if you are uh, if you're pressing for one specific form, what people want is actually a bit of individual reparation to to actually be able to. Um, yeah, media expenses in a sense, and and uh, and go back to normal. Right now, as we look at justice from an international level to that which is on the ground. So, for our final question, looking at the role of transnational violence, uh, transnational justice, how do victims and potentially the perpetrators of violent acts? How do they move forward in a society together? Well, so in in most cases, if it's a real, if it's a conflict. Um, uh, then usually the role of apologies will be will be important. So there's a normative side of things, and then there's going to be a financial side of things, obviously, um, and it takes it takes time, right? There's a it, it's it's a whole process. The whole field of transitional justice actually has been able to has been quite vibrant in in meeting this. I think it's slightly different when we are including international actors. Why? Because in the case of international actors they don't tend to stay long, right? So in terms of justice, it's quite easy to be able to move away and just bury this issue. If you're from the country, you have to deal with that. Like I'm just giving you an example. Uh, the Timorese were part of the militias that helped the Indonesian to um, um, this kind of scorched-earth policy in the 1999 in the beginning of the conflict. They fled to the Indonesian side of the island, right? Uh, then after a few weeks, or they came back, right? Because this is where they're from, the village and stuff. And obviously, all the transitional just not not obviously actually, the transitional justice kind of needs were handled by the local communities without actually the UN or international actors knowing what was going on. They were dealing this locally, which is not perfect. Obviously, it was going to be probably quite gendered. Um, there are other types of issues with this kind of very local traditional uh, systems of justice but they were doing they were doing their things it's different when we have international actors involved because say what we have in Haiti is um, peacekeepers fathering uh, children potentially out of uh, sexual exploitation or, or rape and then going back home not recognizing them leaving them in, in the communities and this source of they, they will be ostracized and probably with a different kind of color skin. Um, and so it's, um, it's, it's it's difficult as an issue. So with transitional justice as a kind of, um, as a literature is able to deal with the local kind of uh, side of things pretty well. And there's, there's really a, a, a great v variety of, uh, of articles and, and, and literature on this. But the international side of things, we're still a little bit uh, grappling for answers, you know, so don't know really how to handle this. Well, unfortunately, that's all we have time for. But Nicholas, thank you for joining us today. My pleasure.